here's what I like to do every week. I like to read a passage. I want to pray, and then I want to preach. Is that all right? Yeah. I plan on doing the same this week. You guys ready? Yeah. Let's go then. Matthew 28, starting in verse 1, it says this. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. There was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards were shaken by fear of him. They became like dead men. The angel told the woman, don't be afraid because I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he is risen. Just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. This morning, we celebrate how an empty tomb made way for eternal life. Not the tomb itself, but it's the man who was laid in the tomb, Jesus. This week, we had prayer a couple of mornings at the church, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And on Wednesday morning, I was sitting in here praying and was reading in the book of John. Honestly, wasn't even really uh, thinking about Sunday's message. It was just, I'm reading through the book of John in my own time. So I was just reading the Bible for myself. And, uh, you know, I, I was specifically reading in John chapter three. And at this point in the scriptures, uh, we find John the Baptist having a conversation with his disciples and his disciples are kind of in a huff because nobody's coming to them to be baptized anymore. They're all going to Jesus to be baptized. Up until this point, John was so good at baptizing people, they just built it into his name. <laughs> okay. <laughs> tough crowd, tough crowd. That's okay. That's okay. I didn't make that joke first service. I won't make that joke third service. <laughs> They come to John and they're like, John, every, everybody's going to Jesus to get baptized. They're not coming to us. But John had a revelation of who Jesus truly was. And so we read in John 3.30, a famous verse where he says, he must become greater, I must become less. I must become less, he must become greater. John knew who Jesus was. And so if you've been in church, you've heard that verse, you're familiar with that verse, but it wasn't so much that verse that gripped my heart. It was the five verses that came after that. I wanna read it with you because it reaffirms who Jesus was and who Jesus is. So John 3, verse 31, it says this. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, yet no one accepts his testimony. John's saying Jesus has come from heaven and he testifies about what he's experienced there. Yet people don't believe him. Let's continue reading. The one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true. For the one whom God sent speaks God's word since he gives the spirit without measure. Jesus speaks God's word because he receives the spirit of God without measure. Okay, this is Jesus. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. The one who believes in the son has eternal life. But the one who rejects the son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. These are the words of John. Again, John had received revelation of who the person of Jesus truly was. And I really sense that the question the Lord is asking every heart in the room 
is who do you say that I am? When it comes to the person of Jesus, we have to answer the question, who is this man? Who is this man? All right, I'm gonna pray and then I'm gonna jump into the message. Jesus, we love you so much. Man, what an honor it is to just preach to a room full of people. God, I pray for uh, a powerful anointing that allows me to preach effectively. I pray for every heart in the room that your Holy Spirit would till the soil of our heart right now in Jesus' name, that it would be fertile ground to receive the word of your truth, uh, that real life eternal impact would be made in this room this morning, that kingdom impact would be made, that transformation would be experienced, Lord. I pray that we wouldn't just hear your word, but that we would live it out and that we would truly believe it. We love you. We, I pray this church would continue to foster kids in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I've shared this story before. Maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't, but about two years ago, I uh, had to jump on a plane. I was going to Florida. I had a ministry leader conference that I was gonna represent Destiny Church at. And so my family wasn't with me. I didn't have any other staff members with me. I was totally by myself. And so I jump up on this plane and uh, I'm just sitting in my seat. I've already got on the plane and this kind of punk rock looking kid gets on the plane and he starts coming down the aisle and come to find out this is going to be the kid that sits next to me. And so as he's sliding across me to make his way to the window seat, Holy Spirit like whispers to my heart, drugs. And I know that I'm supposed to ask him about drugs, but I don't know this guy. And I'm like, I really don't just want to ask this guy if he does drugs. Like that's just not... (laughs) the conversation. And I know that's what I'm supposed to do, but I'm disobedient. Okay. Put my seatbelt on. I put my headphones in and the plane takes off. About halfway through the plane ride, uh, uh, seriously, I'm trying to prepare my heart for this meeting. And isn't it funny that we'll like seek Jesus in our seat and won't do the very thing that he's telling us to do right in the moment. But um, I'm not the only one. So y'all just quit judging me. And and, and so I'm sitting here, I pull out my Bible and and I start to read. And all of a sudden I feel a tap on my shoulder. And it's Mr. Punk Rock right next to me. And so he goes, what are you reading? And I can tell there's just this like intense curiosity that's just exuding from his expression. And I'm like, dude, this is the Bible. And he's like, wow. And I can tell like, all right, Lord, here we go. And so, you know, we start talking and I ask him, found out his name's Benjamin. And I asked Benjamin, uh, so what are you going to Florida for? What are you on this plane for? And he tells me, he goes, man, I'm, I'm flying. My parents are in Florida. They're going to help check me into a rehab. Uh, he goes, I, I just tried to take my own life by overdosing on pills. And uh, so he, he, and I'd already told him what I was heading to Florida for. And I can't recall um, the details of the conversation or even how it went, but I know that at some point in the conversation, I asked Benjamin, I said, man, what are you, ex- like, what's your purpose, man? What do, you, what do you believe you're on earth for? Because I know my Bible tells me that I was created through Jesus and I was created for Jesus, right? But like Ben responds, like most non-believers do or unbelievers do whenever I ask this question, he responds like this. He says, to be a good person. My purpose is to be a good person. And is it interesting that whether or not we believe in Jesus, most people will affirm that they believe in the reality that good exists and evil exists, right? And so my follow-up question to Ben was, I said, okay, Ben, I said, your purpose is to be a good person. I said, so let me ask you this, what defines good? How do you define it? 
if good exists and evil exists, something has to set the boundaries uh, around what those things are and what those things are not. And so I, I ask him, how, how do you define good? If it's based on what you feel, then it's not definite. If it's relative, then it can change from person to person. Something has to define it. And so before this becomes an apologetics seminar, I'll, I'll cut to the chase here. I wonder if part of the sadness and the grief and the discouragement that Ben was wrestling with was catalyzed by him believing his life's purpose was something that he would never achieve. I want to encourage the room this morning. You're not good and neither am I. I'll see you all next week. Praise God. <laughs> this is what we came to hear. Amen. But the Bible does provide us the standard for what is good. It's the law. It's the commandments. And if they're not followed to a T, then we're broken, we're bad, we're guilty, we're unfit for the standard which heaven requires. And we don't meet the standard. We're not good. The reality is that all of us, we've been born into rebellion. Sin exists. We're, con we're all contaminated by sin. We're all contaminated by brokenness. You and I were rebels. Benjamin, rebel. Yet 2,000 years ago, there's a man who was miraculously conceived in the womb of a virgin. The reason you and I have sin within us because the sin of man is in the seed of man. Yet there is a man who is miraculously conceived in the womb of a virgin. And as he grows... There will be a moment when his earthly ministry begins where friends will lower their paralyzed partner down in front of him. They'll tear this roof off this house and they'll set this man. And Jesus will look at this man and he'll heal his body. But before he even heals his body, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And there's Pharisees who are in proximity. There's religious leaders who are in proximity and they think to themselves, who is this man? that he thinks he has the authority to forgive sins. Who does he think he is? There's another instance. Jesus is taking a nap on a boat. The winds and the waves are raging on the sea and the disciples are, ah, we're gonna die. And they go and they, and they wake up Jesus. Jesus, how are you taking a nap? And he will come to the front of the boat and he will look at the winds and the waves and he will say, be still and they will obey him. And the disciples will say, who is this man? that even the winds and the waves obey him. He roams the earth, preaching, teaching, loving, healing. Some grow to love him. Some choose to follow him. Some hate him. He becomes the most polarizing figure that history will ever know, not because of his methods, but his message. And his message is best summarized by himself in John 14, 6. When Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Who is this man? Exactly who he says he is. The way, the truth, and the life. I'm also reminded of a conversation that Jesus has towards the end of his ministry where he's no longer the one being asked the questions, but instead he decides he's going to ask them himself. And so he looks at his disciples and he says to them, who do people say that I am? Who do they say that I am? 
And they all kind of throw out a collage of answers. Oh, John the Baptist, Elijah. Some say Jeremiah or another prophet. And Jesus says, okay, but he's quick to change the context of the question. And he flips it around and he asks them directly. And I believe that at some point we all have to answer the question, but who do you say that I am? And so Peter responds quickly and probably abrasively because that would be consistent with his character. Peter says, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus responds, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven did. AKA Jesus is affirming with his disciples. He's telling them plainly, you're right. I am the Messiah. Now, maybe you know, maybe you don't know. That's okay. We're going to break it down. But in the Old Testament, we see the Jews, the Israelites. And these are God's set-apart people. His favor is upon them. And so as we peer into the Old Testament, we see this pattern. We see this ebb and flow with the Jews, with the people that God has marked as his own. Oftentimes because of their own disobedience and their own rebellion, they're overtaken by their enemies. Then God usually will raise somebody up and the Lord will use that person, that figure, that character to deliver his people from their earthly plight. So it's Moses delivering the Israelites from Egypt. If it's not Moses, it's Joshua. If it's not Joshua, it's David. And the trends continue. Rebellion, uh, they reap the consequences of their rebellion. Someone's raised up, deliver them from their earthly plight. And we see the cycle continue. And so as we peer into the New Testament, we see a Jewish people who is awaiting a promised Messiah and they're thinking that it's going to look the same, except it's not the Canaanites, it's not the Philistines, it's the Romans. The Romans have been bullying us. The Romans have been oppressing us. I can't wait for the Messiah to come to set us free from our Roman oppression. And so they're awaiting. They're, they're anxious to see the Messiah. They can't wait for the Messiah to come because uh, uh, he's going to set God's people free from their oppression from the Jews. This Messiah is going to come. He's going to wipe out the Romans. He's going to restore back to the Jews the quality of life that they've so longed for, they so desired. The Messiah, he's going to be a king. He's going to be a powerful political leader. He's going to be a mighty warrior anointed by God to help the Jews out of their Roman oppression. There's anticipation. There's expectation. There's anxious awaiting. Word is spreading now that Jesus is the Messiah. Here he is. He's here. He's already demonstrated his divine ability. There's whispers that he's the son of God. There's whispers that he's king of the Jews. This is the man the Jews have been awaiting for. The Messiah has arrived. He's here. And he's confirmed it with his disciples. Yet it's not long after that that Jesus is being arrested. Jesus is being beaten. Jesus is being whipped, nailed to a cross, dying a criminal's death as an innocent, perfect man. And all who had hoped that this Messiah would deliver them and set them free and liberate them, they watch him die. This was supposed to be the Messiah. This isn't, this isn't the plan. This isn't what we thought. The Messiah was supposed to win. 
The Messiah was supposed to dominate. The Messiah was supposed to demonstrate strength, yet here he is losing, dominated, appearing weak. And it's strange though, because as Jesus is on the cross, in these final moments, as he dies, as he gives up his last breath, all of a sudden there's a rumbling. The sky goes black, the earth quakes in the, in, in the curtain in the temple tears from top to bottom. And I'll tell you why it's because Sunday's coming. This is Friday. Friday, Jesus dies. He's placed in the tomb. Saturday, religious leaders go to Pilate, who's like a governor of the time. And they say, listen, this guy, Jesus, they've talked about how he's supposed to come back from the dead. I don't want any nonsense. We don't want any games. We need to seal this tomb. We need to set guards there so his disciples can't come steal him and make up rumors. And so they literally make provisions to further seal the tomb and they set guards on each side. No one's taking this body. This man is dead. He's in the grave. That's Friday. That's Saturday. And here's what we read about Sunday. Matthew 28, verse one. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. Excuse me. There was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards were so shaken by fear of him that they became like dead men. And the angel told the women, don't be afraid. I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified, but he's not here for he is risen. Just as he said, come and see the place where he lays. God is a just God. And there's this thing called evil that we're all confronted with, that we all take part in, that we're all contaminated by. And he is a just God that is gonna deal with evil. And aren't you glad? Because he's gonna make a place where it doesn't exist any longer. And, he, and he's preparing a room for those that would believe that he truly is the Messiah. He's gonna do away with evil. This is good news. But the wages of sin, the wages of evil, evil has to be paid for and it will be paid for with death. Yet we don't have a God that says, do your best to perform, do your best to, to uh, jump through the hoops and the loops. Instead, we have a God that looks upon his creation, that leaves his throne, that enters into the earth, that does what we cannot do, lives a perfect life, avoids evil entirely, dies on a cross and overcomes the grave and says, if you believe in me, I'll cover it. I'll pay the price. The wages of sin are death. So Jesus had to die. It wasn't weakness, it was strength. Mighty warrior. He didn't come to deal with the Romans. He came to deal with evil. He came to deal with the powers of hell. We serve a God who could do more than we ever asked or imagined. This ain't no Canaanites. This ain't no Philistines. This is all the evil in the world. He said, I'll take that on. Don't tell me our God's not a mighty warrior. Don't tell me he's not a king. Humanity's enemy was never the Canaanites. It wasn't the Philistines. It wasn't the Romans. Humanity's enemy was Satan 
and the powers of hell. And Jesus wasn't concerned about rescuing a certain sect of people from their earthly oppression, right? His plans are are greater than we could ever imagine. Jesus came to rescue humanity from the wages of sin by taking on sin himself, by taking on death himself and overcoming, by standing. He stood in the place that we deserved and he endured the wrath of God so that you and I wouldn't have to that we might avoid death and have life to the full. And that is good news for a people that's trapped in their rebellion, that we have a loving father that would look upon his rebels and despite his rebellious people would rescue his people. Hallelujah. It's good news. What Jesus did, you and I can never do because we're not good. What Jesus did, only he could do because only he is good. You and I are not. But through faith in him, in his finished work, that he is enough, he allows us to claim that goodness for ourselves. He paid the price for our sins. He set us free. He makes us new. He restored what was lost. And we receive it by faith, not by performing, not being good enough, not praying enough, not reading our Bible enough, not by doing better and being better, but by confessing, Jesus, I'm not good enough, but you are. And I need you. I believe you're enough. I'm yours. And so I'm sitting on this plane with Benjamin, who's coming to agreement with the lie that the earth would be better if he wasn't here and that he should probably just end it. I'm sitting here with Benjamin, who has tried his hardest to be good and couldn't get it right, who has tried to bury and numb the pain with a pile of pills. And I told Benjamin, listen, that's not your purpose. You were created by Jesus and you were created for Jesus and God loves you. And if you'll place faith in him, he'll save you and everything will change. And so me and Ben sat on this airplane and he repeated a prayer after me. And his relationship with Jesus started. Ben decided to answer the question, who is this man? He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. He is the Messiah. He's the one who set humanity free from the penalty of sin. But here's what breaks my heart, even as I thought about this weekend, as I thought about how people might come to church for the first time in a while, or people who you know, might, might come through the doors who are, are trying to decide where they're at with this man, where they haven't necessarily fully answered the question, who is this man? What breaks my heart is there's people who you even sense in your own spirit, you sense in your own heart, Jesus is drawing you and you long to know God but you believe that you can never be worthy. And I just want to speak to the person who's caught in their addiction, who's wrestling with their sexual identity, who's been unfaithful in relationships, who's mistreated their children. Whoever you are, I'm not worthy either. And no one else in this room is worthy either. And the same grace that I need 
you need. And the same grace you need, I need. And the same Savior you need, I need. Whatever brokenness you're carrying in this place, Jesus knows it exists and he sees it. Yet the word tells us while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He loves you so much. He's just whispering to the room, who do you say that I am? And if you're in this place this morning, if you haven't confessed and believed Jesus is the Messiah whose sacrifice was sufficient to cover your sin, listen, you don't got to clean yourself up to come to Jesus. You come to Jesus and get clean. I talked about John 3 at the beginning of this, and I love this verse from John 3. You might know it. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, would not pay the price for their own sin, would have their sin paid for. They would not perish, but would have eternal life with Jesus. With lights low, I want to speak to the room It's a room full of rebels. (laughs) But maybe there's some rebels in the room and you haven't believed it. You haven't allowed that relationship with Jesus to begin. You haven't confessed and believed. And Jesus so badly wants relationship with you, wants to change everything, wants to wash away the old and bring forth the new. It's simple. It's by faith. It's by belief. It's by trust in Jesus. And so I want to provide a practical starting place for you, just like with Benjamin as we sat on a plane. Are you ready for this relationship with Jesus? Are are you ready to respond to the gnawing at your own heart, at your own spirit, or are we just going to keep running? I know you're not good enough. I know you're broken. I know you got issues. Join the club. Yet he sees creation. He went on a rescue mission. He's asked us to respond to it. We have to answer the question, who is this man?